Jack the Ripper, arguably one of the most recognizable names in the world of true crime. The legends of the unknown culprit who haunted the streets of London in the 1800s. The heinous nature of his crimes felt like the work of fiction, and the grisly displays he left behind were chilling for a city without answers. Today, we're going to be diving into some of the most infamous scenes he left behind in East London, and the marks he left on England as one of the most cruel and mysterious killers in recent history. So where exactly do we begin? Our story starts on the streets of East London in 1888. The area near East Chapel was extremely overcrowded, and by all accounts it was considered a slum, packed in with more than half a million of London's poorest citizens, it became a breeding ground for theft, manipulation, greed, and unspeakable crimes. The conditions of the area were known to be rough, many suffering from addiction and alcoholism. Most notably for the time, many of the women who lived on these streets resorted to prostitution. It was the only way to make ends meet. But conditions were dangerous. It left many women out in the open and in full view of harmful men, dangerous men. Which is exactly how we would meet the first victim of the Ripper. Her name was Marianne Polly Nichols. She was a 44-year-old prostitute in East London. And although there's some speculation on this, she is widely believed to be the very first victim of Jack the Ripper. Marianne Nichols was originally employed in East London as a domestic servant. But she struggled with alcoholism, a feat that she could never really get over, and one that would ultimately cost her her job, to which she turned to the streets, and eventually prostitution. Around the time that she turned to the streets, she had eventually moved into a lodging house. But given some of her struggles with alcoholism, she was unable to pay for her room. So, she roughly left around 11pm one night, hoping that she could raise the money by prostituting. Having no idea that the very second she walked out to those streets, it would be the last time she would ever leave. Roughly around 2 a.m. that night, a friend of hers, who would ultimately become a witness, found her and tried to convince her to come back with her. But Marianne seemed unconcerned. She had already raised enough money for the room, but she continued to spend it on alcohol all night. So she declined and stayed on the streets, her friend watched as she walked away towards Whitechapel Road, and this would be the last time she was ever seen alive. Just one hour later, her body was discovered in a grisly state. Nichols was found down an alleyway, and she had been viciously murdered. And although at the time, the murder of a prostitute was not considered something the police had taken seriously, or anything that was uncommon, the way she was murdered was something that shocked everyone. The body had effectively been mutilated. She had two jagged stab wounds that went so deeply into her neck they had reached her vertebrae. Additionally, large wounds that cut through her abdomen and had essentially disemboweled her. Most of her lower organs were fully exposed. This was unlike anything the police in the area had ever seen. Her death on August 30th stunned the entire city and would be the first of a series of murders to come. Roughly a week later, on Saturday, September 8th, 
the Ripper would strike again. This time, the victim was 47-year-old Annie Chapman, a very similar case to the previous victim, as Annie was also living in a lodging house, also suffered from alcoholism and was often incapacitated, and also worked as a prostitute. The injuries were eerily similar to the previous victim, as her throat had also been slashed all the way down to the vertebrae. This led investigators to believe that the first method of the Ripper was to slash the throat of the victim and cut through the vocal cords. Once he had severed the vocal cords of a victim, they could effectively never scream for help. And whatever he did with the body afterwards would happen in agonizing silence. Only this time with his victim, the mutilations were worse. Not only did she have a very similar slice to the abdomen and she was partially disemboweled, the Ripper had removed some of her organs and they were strategically placed on the body. A section of her stomach was removed and placed upon her right shoulder. Another section of skin and intestine was placed on her left. An autopsy would also reveal that her bladder had been removed and whoever the killer was, he took it with him. It was around this time that investigators picked up on the pattern and they realized this was no ordinary killer. He was taking souvenirs of his victims, body parts, to keep at home. The city was spiraling in fear. Who was out there and who was going after these women? No one had any answers. There were no witnesses. And everyone was left wondering, when would he strike again? That answer was met with the third victim to come on September 30th in the early morning hours. This day was especially chilling for the public, as not only did the Ripper claim one victim, but two in a single day. Early in the morning on the Sunday of September 30th, a third victim was claimed. A carriage driver passing through East London with his horse and buggy would spot something in the dimly lit open yard a woman on the ground up against the wall, profusely bleeding from her neck. She was 44-year-old Elizabeth Stride, and by the time police got to her body, she was already dead. Now it's believed that this carriage driver actually may have interrupted Jack the Ripper while he was mid-kill. Thus far, with his previous victims, we know his pattern. He tends to go for the throat first, and the mutilations come second. So if she was found with just her throat slashed and her body was still warm, he wasn't finished. Which would make plenty sense of what was to come just one hour later. Catherine Eddowes would become the next victim of Jack the Ripper. Again, a similar pattern of a woman in her 40s. She was a 46-year-old who was struggling with alcoholism. She was actually so intoxicated the night before that she had previously been taken into custody around 8.30 p.m. She was released by 1 a.m. and her body would be found by 1.45. Her body was found in Mitre Square, roughly one mile away from the previous victim, and very similar to those who came before, her throat had been viciously slashed. She was also found by police to have been disemboweled and her intestines had been pulled out and draped over her shoulder. But this killing wasn't quite like the ones that came before. It was much worse. 
several of her organs, including her uterus, had been completely removed, and the mutilations to her face made her unrecognizable. Her nose had been entirely cut off, and both of her cheeks on each side of the jaw had been cut away. He had also driven his knife into each eye socket and gouged the eyes out. Mutilations that the examiner would ultimately rule may have happened while she was alive, and probably took somewhere between five to ten minutes to complete. The Ripper seemed relentless, and he would continue to kill if they didn't find him. Eventually, things reached the government in a way that no one could have anticipated. Just two weeks later, on the 16th of October, the Whitechapel Vigilance Committee received a parcel and a package. Inside was a note from the Ripper and a human kidney from a victim. The letter claimed that the kidney was from the murder and disembowelment of Eddowes, and the sender included the return address of Hell. East London had gone into a complete panic. Nobody knew who this was, where they were, and when he would strike again. But ultimately, we would arrive at November 9th, 1888, where we would see the fifth and final victim of Jack the Ripper. Mary Jane Kelly, a 25-year-old woman, also living in East London and also working as a prostitute. She was much younger than the victims that had come before, but her circumstances were eerily similar. However, there was one detail that separated her murder from the rest. She was not killed outdoors, but rather inside. She had rented a room at Miller's Court, where she would often prostitute. But there was one client that she allowed in who would take her life. The Ripper. Her murder is considered one of the most significant in the case because it would lead to one of the only known witness descriptions of Jack the Ripper. A man named George Hutchinson had met her near Commercial Street that night around 2 a.m., this was where she asked him for a loan of six pence, and when he told her he couldn't give it to her, she walked in the opposite direction, and he saw her meet up with a strange man. He watched her near Thrall Street as she picked up the man, who was very well-dressed, and she led him in the direction of her lodgings. He was dressed with a coat with astrakhan fur, as well as a black tie with a horseshoe pin. Ultimately, this description led to the theory that Jack the Ripper was a member of the upper-class society of London. It wasn't until the following morning that an assistant to the landlord came to collect the rent, of which she was six weeks behind. And when she didn't answer the door, he was able to move aside some clothing that was plugging up a broken window. And that's when he saw it. Jack the Ripper had struck, and her body was mutilated beyond comprehension. This having been his first kill indoors, it afforded the Ripper an unusual amount of time to make mutilations that were outside of his normal routine. Jack the Ripper had sliced through her throat, all the way down to the spinal cord and partially through it. He had also gouged at her face so horrifically that the majority of it had been removed, including her cheeks, her nose, her eyes, and her eyebrows. The abdomen, again completely sliced open, had been emptied of almost all its organs. Specifically, the uterus was removed, just like the previous victim. 
Many of the organs were scattered around the body, with one in particular missing, the heart. It's believed that Jack the Ripper took this again as a souvenir. Both of her breasts had also been completely removed from the body, and he had skinned her thighs. The coroner, in surveying the scene and eventually the autopsy that took place, estimated that the Ripper spent close to two hours mutilating the body. The hunt for this man was on. Investigators had never dealt with a killer of this magnitude, and specifically, one that was very good to not leave behind any clues. A heap of confusion ran through the city. There were an extensive number of papers that had fabricated parts of the story, just as a way to sell more tabloid press. That, in addition to many false letters that came in as hoaxes, it was throwing things off the trail. And without any of the advances of modern forensics, the investigators weren't left with much direction. But we do have a few suspects, the first of which was Montague Johnson Druitt. He was a barrister, and it's believed he may have had an uncle and a cousin who were both doctors. It's been partially suspected by some who had reviewed the case at the time that the Ripper may have been a doctor, or he may have had medical knowledge. Now, it's suspected that at the time, he may have been living with his cousin while he was studying medicine. He would have been a man in his 40s, roughly fits the visual profile of the Ripper, and it was noted that he had a specific interest in medicine and surgery. It was noted that his cousin also lived very close to where the Whitechapel murders occurred. But none of this feels particularly compelling for a suspect, until we would learn some insider information. Just about a month prior to the very first killing of Jack the Ripper, his mother had gone insane, and it was detailed in a private note that he feared that he was also going insane. According to statements that were later obtained from the family, they believed that he had gone sexually insane. But there were no further details on what they meant by this. One of the oddest details that could convict him in this case was that following the final murder of Jack the Ripper, he had disappeared. Then just four weeks later on December 3rd, he was found dead. His body was floating in the nearby river, suspected to be of his own doing. But the only things that can really connect the dots here are the incriminating depictions of his own insanity as well as the timeline. If he wasn't Jack the Ripper, it would be very strange that the Ripper suddenly stopped any killings after this time period. The second suspect we'll look at is Michael Ostrog. Ostrog was a Russian doctor living in this area and a convicted criminal. He had previously been committed to an asylum for homicidal tendencies because of his medical knowledge, he was one of the first suspects that investigators looked at, and eerily enough, he was unable to provide an alibi for every single murder of the Ripper. But there was insufficient evidence to prove that he had any connection to any of this. Certainly, he would understand the principles of surgery, he would know how to hack a body, and it may have even been a connection to the routine. And it was very odd for investigators to think that he couldn't give them one timestamp of where he was when something like this occurred. But without sufficient evidence, he would fall out of suspicion. They then turned their attention to Aaron Kosminski. Coincidentally, he had also spent time in an asylum, 
But it wasn't before the murders. It was after. The final murder of Jack the Ripper occurred sometime in late 1888, and then by 1889, Kosminski was committed to an asylum. Kosminski was a significant suspect in this case, as he was very well known for his particular hatred towards women, and specifically towards prostitutes. He was also, visually, one of the closest suspects to any of the witness accounts of who might have been Jack the Ripper. And given how unstable he was, he would actually remain in the asylum until his death in 1919, which could partially explain why the Ripper killing suddenly stopped after 1888. There has been speculation that there is some DNA evidence that can link him to the killings. Specifically, there was a shawl that was obtained through auction that was believed to have been on the body of Eddowes when she was killed. On this shawl, it was examined and it was found that there was a stain of semen which was collected. That stain, when examined for a DNA match and compared up against a descendant of this suspect, was allegedly a match. What everyone thought was a smoking gun and had effectively closed the case was unfortunately far from it. A critical error was made in the review of the DNA match, which has since dispelled the connection and any of the findings connected to this shawl have not been peer-reviewed, and the doctor who conducted this has not been cooperative, which spells a great deal of mistrust for any of the people who have reviewed this case over the decades. So let's pivot some of our theories and talk about something a little different. There are actually quite a few people who believe that Jack the Ripper wasn't Jack at all, but in fact, a woman. This is a theory known as Jill the Ripper. Famed Inspector Aberline firmly believed that Jack the Ripper could have actually have been a female suspect and that all of the avenues looking towards men were incorrect. Many who side with this theory suggest that the reason Jack the Ripper was so elusive and was able to slip through the cracks in the investigation was because they were an unsuspecting woman. It could have been that it was a midwife somebody who had the anatomical knowledge to carry out any of these mutilations, and also someone who, if found with blood on their clothing, would not raise suspicion. But it should be noted that any of the witness descriptions of who might have been Jack the Ripper all seem to link back to a man. And it's not to say that it couldn't have been a woman in disguise. It's just less likely. There are many Ripperologists who stand firm on this theory that it could have been a woman who had plotted this all along, was dressing in drag, luring drunk prostitutes, and then mutilating them for whatever reason. We'd then shift over to our final suspect in the case. He is considered the most compelling suspect on casebook.org. His name is James Maybrick. James was a cotton merchant, and coincidentally, just one year following the final Ripper killing, James had died. Timing-wise, it seemed like it would have coincided of when the Ripper killings would have stopped. But what really made him a compelling suspect? Now, he was considered somewhat upper class, and this would have coincided with the visual description that we have of the Ripper, a sharply dressed man. But James didn't live in this area of London. He actually lived up in Liverpool, which many felt etched him out of possibility. But it should be noted that every single killing of Jack the Ripper 
took place on a Saturday and a Sunday. These were killings that happened on a weekend. It's not off the table for many to think that he could have came down from Liverpool and would do this on his weekends and then leave the city. But it's all circumstantial, very easy to poke a hole in this. So what really is the smoking gun of this suspect? It is one of the most compelling physical pieces of evidence in the Jack the Ripper case. Following his death, his estate was inspected and something damning was found beneath the floorboards. It was a diary written in his hand, which stated the following. I give my name that all know of me. So history do tell what love can do to a gentleman born. Yours truly, Jack the Ripper. A haunting sentiment, but even further buried within the diary were very detailed accounts of the killings. And of course, these could have been the make of reading the newspapers or the tabloids. But they were highly detailed. Extremely detailed, even. Once the diary was discovered, scientific testing was done on the pages where these things were written to see what date they could be matched to. And although it can't give an exact date, they are roughly matched to the era of the Ripper killings. Additionally, there would be a discovery of a pocket watch. A pocket watch that seemed to have hand-engraved initials. Initials that all matched the names of the five victims of the Jack the Ripper killings. In addition to a message that read, I am Jack. At the very bottom of that watch, etched into the metal, was written J. Maybrick. The hand engravings into the watch were analyzed via electron microscope where Dr. Stephen Turgus determined they were not made in modern times, or at least upon the time they were discovered. But even with this evidence, no one can definitively say whether or not this is Jack the Ripper. Unfortunately, the case is really a victim of time, as every year that goes by we become further and further from the truth of who he was and how he did what he did. The case of Jack the Ripper is still very prevalent throughout London to this day. The story has rightfully personified him as a monster in mystery, as many love to speculate who he could have been and why he did what he did. But truthfully, we may never know. As to this day, the case of Jack the Ripper remains unsolved. Unsolved.